Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious friendly, pro-democracy, diversity welcoming, public good oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. Today, I want to welcome the Reverend Dr. Lisa Davison, who is the Johnny Ergel Cadjo Professor of Hebrew Bible at Phillips Theological Seminary. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? Hi, Gary. I'm doing well. Thank you. How about you? Good. I'm all right. I'm all right. We are recording on a very cold, rainy, almost winter-like morning here in Tulsa. Yes, I probably should have said I'm not as good as I could be because of the weather. Right. There you go. There you go. Well, let's start with, um, when did you first come to Phillips? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I actually taught at two different times as a a visiting professor for one class Mm -hmm. while I was still teaching at Lexington Theological Seminary. And I can't remember the exact years of that. Okay. But I had been here in that capacity. And then I was hired in this position in uh, 2010. Surprised how quick time has flown by. And, and you've seen then all of the, uh, you've experienced, not just seen, you've experienced, been part of um, a number of transitions in regard to how we teach at Phillips. Yes, I have. Um, coming to Phillips was the first time I was ever uh, asked or given the opportunity to teach online in a uh, asynchronous fashion. Um, And then with COVID, I've had the opportunity to do uh, synchronous teaching from a distance uh, for weekend classes. Um, So I I still am more into the synchronous piece. Asynchronous is not quite as uh, smooth for me, but Mm -hmm. I get better every year, I like to think so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about your teaching in a little bit. All right. So. Um, uh, your title is Professor of Hebrew Bible, uh, mm-hmm. and I know that is a move that has been made in the academy in particular uh, over, the, over uh, recent decades. But a lot of Christians will think, well, why Hebrew Bible rather than Old Testament, and what difference does it make? And I know well, that's, a, that's a really important issue for you, so let's talk about it. Okay. Um, I like to tell folks that, of course, I grew up in the church hearing stories from the Old Testament, took Old Testament classes in college for my religion major, and then I arrived on the campus of Bright Divinity School to begin my Master of Divinity program, and the professor who taught this area, Dr. Tony Craven, 
um, had on her office door Hebrew Bible and Old Testament, kind of uh, parallel to each other. And that was really the first time that I had been introduced to this title, Hebrew Bible. Hmm. Um, It did begin in the academy, um, primarily because we were having conversations with scholars from all backgrounds, um, many of whom were also Jewish. Jewish. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we said Old Testament, that did not sync with their understanding of um, the text. Um, And so the title Hebrew Bible was borrowed to make it a more uh, interfaith uh, friendly way of labeling this part of scripture. And so um, my degree at Vanderbilt was in Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay. For me, Hebrew Bible was very important also um, in looking at how Christians and Jewish people have um, interfaith conversation Mm -hmm. because What happens, whether intentionally or not, though I think it has been intentional at times, is people hear the word old and they think outdated, Mm -hmm. no longer relevant. Um, And then you have. Yeah. And then you have the New Testament and people think, oh, well, it's new. It's got to be better. It's got to be, you know, uh, more important, Um, which I think um, is part of that long history of Christian uh, anti-Semitism mm-hmm. um, and really of supersessionism. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that the, the church has supplanted Israel as God's covenant people, um, which is neither biblically correct nor theologically sound, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having that Hebrew Bible helped people realize that this had value in and of itself. In and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say the first place I found some difficulty was when I would be teaching in churches mm-hmm. while I was doing my um, PhD work. And I would say Hebrew Bible, and that would make them think something totally unrelated to their Bible. Right. Didn't even sound like New Testament. Right. Um, so I, along with a few other uh, colleagues of mine, would often use the phrase first testament mm-hmm. in the church mm-hmm. so we had first mm-hmm. and new and they sounded very important equally so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so i i have used that term um in the past in fact when i taught at lexington i was the professor of first testament mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but i'm moving back towards the idea that hebrew bible reminds us of the uh, interfaith work that must be done when we're sh- dealing with scripture that we share with other traditions. Right. So right. Um, that it's important to me because it helps uh, Christians understand that these were first the texts of the Jewish community and that we are um, siblings in that faith journey of using both the Hebrew Bible for Christians and the New Testament. Um, so that's that's kind of my spiel. Um, Very good. Yeah. And hopefully that does, if it if people don't call it Hebrew Bible, at least they've got that echoing in their mind as a way of being very attentive mm-hmm. to the way we read these texts. Right. So so important for the for the text itself as well as the community that reads that text to be acknowledged uh, for uh, in having integrity in, in their own right 
rather than simply as, well, that's the community out of which Christianity was birthed. Yes. Um, uh, it just is, it's, it's a whole lot more fair assessment uh, and, and best, best for relationships when we need to be working together. Exactly. And um, I tell my students in class that um, Hebrew Bible is what I want them to use now, mm-hmm. at least within the confines mm-hmm. of my mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, I also say to them, we are going to be reading the Hebrew Bible as it has inherent value which I believe is true. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to jump to New Testament. We're not mm-hmm. going to jump to Jesus. Jesus mm-hmm. is not in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and that's sometimes a struggle for students. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the end, the struggle is worthwhile because then you have great respect for the mm-hmm. text of the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, say something about the discipline of Hebrew Bible studies today. Um, uh, you know, for a lot of us who uh, may be listening, we we studied in a different era, mm-hmm. and and kind of what are the approaches to the text, and how how do you locate yourself in in the various options that are out there? Sure, um, and and actually, I studied in a different era as well. My years in seminary and um, at Vanderbilt for my PhD studies. Uh, were not where they are today. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, currently studies of the Hebrew Bible are wide ranging and become even wider every year. So you have some of us who were trained in historical criticism, textual criticism, source criticism, and those those areas are still prevalent in many uh, of the works in the area of Hebrew Bible. But the push has been in the field of what I will broadly call ideological criticism. The early folks who were trained in those historical methods would label anything and everything as ideological criticism, except for what they were doing. Right. (laughs) It was as if they thought they were those blank slates just doing the study and they had no ideology. Um, So when I use that umbrella term of ideological criticism, I include things like feminist, womanist, um, mujerista, um, Asian American uh, interpretation, um, Mm post-colonial studies, um, and um, in a very exciting field, also um, queer interpretation, where the LGBT and... um, uh, scholars have uh, found a voice and are providing interpretations that are really uh, important for those of us who are uh, allies mm-hmm. or anyone who has not ever had that kind of approach presented to them. Mm. Um, so that's the area that seems to be growing Um I would put myself, it's kind of interesting. I am first and foremost a feminist critic. Mm-hmm. I read the text as a woman. It's the only way I can read them. Um, I read text with um, what we call a hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm-hmm. That idea that the text might be trying to tell me something um, and convince me of something that might not be an accurate picture of humanity or the holy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so particularly asking questions like whose voice is not heard, 
whose mm-hmm. perspective is driving this particular text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very much a rhetorical critic or literary rhetorical critic um, in that I want to get back to the original or as close to the original, at least read these texts in Hebrew, translate them from Hebrew and find the ways that the Hebrew language is expressing concepts that most English translations haven't quite grasped. Mm-hmm. Um, so a rhetorical critic. Um, and then uh, in that area also of ideological criticism, um, I've kind of coined a phrase that I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who's doing this, um, but I call my hermeneutic a child-free hermeneutic hmm. um, in that I read texts with a hermeneutic of suspicion um, of seeing how the Bible tends to value women only for their reproductive qualities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the emphasis over and over again, that that's what women are supposed to do, which has mm-hmm. continued into the 21st century in churches, as well as in places within society. And as someone who is child-free by choice, um, I want to point out those uh, problematic ideas and work on finding women um, characters in the story who do something other than produce the right offspring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that's just another twist, I think, under that feminist ideological approach. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just, I'm I'm curious when you talk about the, the kind of plethora of ideological critics uh, mm-hmm. uh, and ideological interpreters, you know, claiming an ideology mm-hmm. uh, and, and all. So how does that then work in terms of scholarly discussion? Uh, uh, you know, we have such an era of polarization mm-hmm. uh, and, and more competing you know, in, the, in the public sphere, certainly competing ideologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how does that work in, in scholarly discussion? Is it, is, is there some sense of listening, you know, is it better at listening to each other? And uh, I guess is what I'm thinking rather, you know, uh, rather than simply, you know, I'm making my point and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm explicitly trying to convince you that, mm-hmm. of this perspective. Um, I would say, yes, we are uh, a bit better at hearing other scholars. Uh-huh. Um, not all of us, uh-huh. but many of us take the perspective of, um, They are giving me a reading of the text that I don't have because of my reading location, because of what I bring to the text. So um, my first, and I think many of us, our first response is to listen Mm -hmm. and think about Mm -hmm. how they're reading that text. Now, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, I guess you would say, um, in that I don't think every interpretation of a biblical text is... um, appropriate or actually valid, right? Yeah. Not equally valid. Um, and so for me, as, as I again tell students, um, using exegesis, drawing out this meaning from the text, using these different methodologies is pseudo scientific method in that mm-hmm. I should be able to trace how you got mm-hmm. your interpretation right. Right. and right. repeat it. If I use the same steps as well as you can't make the, text means something that the words on the page, particularly Hebrew words on the page, do not support. Mm-hmm. So I can't just say it, it's about this, but ignore the words. Um, right. Those right. words 
have uh, they have to be a grounding for right. whatever I draw out of its meaning. Some kind of controls on interpretation, mm-hmm. right? Right. Otherwise, every everyone who who is saying that um, uh, the current president is Cyrus the Persian uh, uh, and uh, you know liberating evangelical Christians from captivity, uh, it you'd have to, if there were no controls, you'd have to say, well, that's a valid interpretation. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think um, as much as I want to be um, open and inclusive, Inclusive. Mm -hmm. yeah, I still want to make certain that we're not doing harm to a biblical text. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, you're known as a really good teacher, as an excellent teacher, and I've seen firsthand uh, how you connect with audiences, whether they be graduate students or uh, uh, church or unchurched lay people, um, uh, in terms of their level of education. Yet you seem you seem able to connect, and I've even heard uh, some pastors say, you know, I had some really really conservative ladies sitting in on that group that Lisa was teaching, um, but. They came out saying, wow, I hadn't considered those things before. Say a little about how you learn to teach. Uh, as we all know, uh, the academy is not, uh, the academy in preparing people for PhDs is not necessarily the place where you learn to do anything other than what the professors uh-huh. in your classroom did. Uh-huh. So how did you learn to teach? That's a really great question, and I do appreciate the compliment. Um, I've even found the ability somehow to speak to junior high and high school kids. That's cool. So, you know, um, that was a stretch, but it was an important stretch for me. If I can't do that, then really is my work worthwhile. I think on a a basic level, I learned to teach from the teachers I've had. Mm Mm-hmm. And I usually categorize those teachers as teachers I wish to emulate mm-hmm. and teachers I never want to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have had some really great teachers from first grade to uh, doctoral studies. Um, and I've had some very, very, um, how do I want to say this? Uh, they're bad teachers, but more importantly, they um, just don't seem concerned with the students' well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had some of those experiences. Um, I think I also, um, even going outside of my educational background, um, I was a member of a church from as early as I could be, and I had really great church school teachers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who I don't remember a whole lot, but they must have triggered something in me that mm-hmm. made me want to study the biblical text more. Um, it's kind of a small town uh, where I grew up. Um, my Sunday school teacher was also my first grade teacher in grade okay. school. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. um, some carry over. Um, and then trying to, you know, after I got beyond the educational piece and was teaching for the first time, also trying to find my own style. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to joke that I wanted my mentor, Dr. Tony Craven. I wanted to be her when I grew up Mm -hmm. because she was an excellent teacher, both with her students as well as in um, lay audiences. 
Um, but then realizing I can't be her, mm-hmm. um, but I can bring forward those qualities. So an- another piece of it has been trial and error, mm-hmm. um, learning what works well um, in any audience, um, how to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Um, if I just stand up and lecture, that's not really education for me. It's much more about making certain that I'm engaging people. Um, I love what I teach. Mm-hmm. And so I also think yeah. that's part of the reason why, yeah, people who don't agree with me at least can tell that I'm passionate, that I've done the work, um, and that I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm just trying to offer alternatives mm-hmm. to what they've been given. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, again, you think about it, well, nobody ever said this is how you teach. Mm-hmm. But um I work hard every time I start a semester to make certain that I'm reflecting the best of my teachers and not the worst of my mm-hmm. teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that does come from being attentive to the discipline of teaching itself. There's, there's, you're, you're so right. There's, there's, yes, there's the material, there's a the content, there's the, the discipline, the field of study that you're trying to, embody and and get across and mm-hmm. and and engage others interest in uh, but there's also the relationship that you're trying to form with the person uh, and and I guess I've seen you not make adjustments in terms of you know leveling up and leveling down uh, but just kind of an ability to make things plain yeah um, uh, even something fairly complex um, so kudos um, as we as we come to a close on our on our short time together, um, can you name uh, uh, one or more reasons why publics beyond churches should know something about the Hebrew Bible? Yes, um, I think in general, particularly in the United States of America, um, the Bible appears in the public square, and whether appropriately or not, right. And the dominant voices, um, I don't believe, are doing faithful uh, interpretation. And so um, people who just hear the proof texting that is going on in the public square have nothing to ground it in. Right. So um, I want them to both read the Hebrew Bible, but also know context and understand why you can't just pick up a text that probably came about in maybe the 5th century BCE mm-hmm. and read it as if it's speaking to the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So um, I think just the, the American public has the Bible there, whether we realize it or not, or want to acknowledge it or not. Um, and we can be an alternative voice and not let those very troubling interpretations be the only thing people hear. Um, And then I think also the, um, as I said, we can be better interfaith partners, um, particularly with our Jewish sisters and brothers, our siblings in the faith. If we are, um, if we know the Hebrew Bible, have respect for the Hebrew Bible and can work at understanding that um, as I understand, as I believe The holy is not an either or deity, that the Mm -hmm. holy can hold covenants with all the people you could imagine, as well as creation. And we as Christians don't get diminished 
if we can uh, recognize that both and deity that yes. is everyone. Right. So you're saying God is not a Christian? <laughs> Most definitely God is not of any particular religious. Right, right, right. But maybe all religious persuasions, if you want to look at it that way. But certainly yeah. I don't think God loves us best and um, thinks we're the most important people as Christians or any other group of people. Yeah. Neither American exceptionalism nor Christian exceptionalism. Exactly. Exactly. Right. right. Reverend Dr. Lisa Davison, thanks so much for being on with me today and committing faith in public and look forward to your continuing contributions to Phillips, to your discipline and to the broader church and public communities. Thanks so much. Thank you, Gary. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Copyright PTS and Gary Peluso Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary. Thank you.